Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Matthew Graham, CEO of Sino Global Capital. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, Laura. Pleased to be with you here today. Since China was obviously the first country to experience the world's big out, the first, the world's first big outbreak of the coronavirus since this originated there in Wuhan, describe for us the economic impact. So we in the West might get a glimpse of what we're in for, but also note any differences that you think. Uh, might exist because, you know, China's an authoritarian country as opposed to a democratic one. Like, especially one thing I'm curious about is like the level of unemployment that we're seeing in the U.S. if, you know, China saw anything like that. Sure. So first, I, I think that as backdrop, here's how I tried to explain to people back home in the States in January and February. Uh, because people had started asking questions. I saw in Wuhan, what's going on? What's that all about? And I would phrase it thusly. I would say, because it's the only way I could get it to resonate. I would say, look, I, I've lived in China for eight years now. I work in crypto. That's the wildest region and the wildest industry. Keeping that in mind is by far the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. This is like nuts. And that's how how I would try to explain it to people back home in January and February, because I I literally I had no way of I had no way of establishing a frame of reference so people could appreciate the the gravity of the situation. Um, So that that's first kind of as backdrop. But uh, it all happened really, really quickly, which I'm sure resonates for people elsewhere in the States, et cetera. Uh, having now gone through it as well. Uh, so at first, there were uh, some really alarming things coming out of Wuhan, where uh, the information was scarce and conflicting. But what I always like to do is just focus on the actual government actions rather than the messaging to try to get an understanding of what's going on. And the government actions were so draconian that it was clear that something was extraordinarily wrong. Uh, so that was kind of the first thing that we saw. And I, I'm based, we're based in Beijing, um, but typically I spend at least half my time traveling throughout China, such as today. And so during this period of time, I was, I was traveling in various first and, and second tier cities. And the situation continued to get more and more severe. And at this time, I was uh, I was 
uh, so I, I'm traveling, right? So I'm, I'm staying at a hotel, planning to stay there for, uh, for about seven or eight days. And so the hotels, uh, five-star hotel, normal capacity, 200 rooms. Um, so about three days into my stay and like everybody's gone. <laughs> so, and, and so I stopped by the, the front desk and I, I said, you know, how many people are, are still at the hotel? And what's normal for this time of year? This is in mid-January, right? Um, and they said, well, normally we'd be fully booked at this time of year, but, you know, we've gone from more than 100 out of 200 rooms booked a few days ago, and they said, we're down to five or six. And and so shortly after that, a few days later, they, they closed the hotel. <laughs> so it just, it just escalated wow. so fast, and everything was a very extreme experience. My last day, I thought, you know, staying at the hotel and it's like me and like one other guest with a huge hotel and they sent all the staff home except for, you know, like a handful of people. So it's like three pieces. It felt like I'm like in the the Stephen King Hotel, right, in in uh, 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 in the movie. It was like a abandoned hotel, practically, right? I'm the last one there, but almost, right? Um, so all this happened in such a short period of time where it went from... Uh, very alarming news in an area that at that time was about 1,500 kilometers away from me um, to now um, they're closing everything down everywhere. Very short, very short uh, uh, turnaround time for that whole process to happen. And and was that similar to the U.S. where like that resulted in really high unemployment or like how how was that all managed? Like, is the economic impact, you know, like, you know, I've sure. seen. Yeah, just I'm curious to know how it's being managed economically. Sure. So that that's a, a great question. And the short answer would just be yes. It affected everything. Um, the initial period of time was over the, uh, the the initial period when it escalated so very very rapidly happened to co- with the exception of Wuhan, which was a few days earlier, but nationwide happened to coincide with the Chinese New Year's holiday, which is of course the biggest holiday of the year, and it's you know people take at least a week, right? Um, so it, it coincided with that. But then uh, it, ended, it ended up just being people took an extended holiday and then it kept extending. But, you know, again, running back to your question, the short answer is yes. And actually, that was what was so hard for me to communicate to family and friends back home. I mean, they're frankly, they're used to crazy Chinese story, China stories, you know, that I that I tell. But but it, there's no way to explain it because I'm trying to explain the whole country shut down. Like the whole thing. So, um, and that's really what happened. So the difference, um, I would say, is that uh, starting, I'd have to go back and look at my calendar, but let's let's call it two or three weeks into January, starting at that point. Whereas in the West, there was more of a period of, I, I should speak more of the United States. In the United States, uh, because I follow that obviously more closely. It's my, my country, right? So there, there's been, um, a very delayed response, very straightforwardly. There's been, uh, a, a slow response 
And there's been a lot of debate about things like the extent, and this is continuing, actually, right? But there's debate about the extent to which there should be social distancing, whether or not people should wear face masks, things like that. So I would say that uh, the major difference is um, the decision was made in a very short period of time to effectively shut everything down. Basically, almost everything, essential uh, workers and services only. And then, you, you know, you literally, there wasn't really an extensive debate. It was just everybody, boom, inside. Everybody is going to go inside and we're going to stay there except for essential workers. So now that China is opening back up, do you feel like businesses are kind of like quickly bouncing back and are they doing so equally? And what is consumer confidence like? Sure. So these, these questions quickly become complicated because of the uh, data quality and data integrity issues and such in China with official statistics and things like that. I would frame it thusly. The initial period, and I, I think you, you got to take a step back because these are related things. So the, the initial period uh, in December and through at least a good part of January, the initial response period, uh, uh, response performance quality was uh, was not good. And, and I, I think that they kind of, like many other places as well, kind of tried to wish it away and, and, and we're going to dig, we're digging our heads in the, in the sand and it wasn't handled well. Since then, since they made the decision to take drastic nationwide steps, I do think it has been handled overall pretty well. And I, I think it, it plays into uh, the, the strengths of an authoritarian society very straightforwardly, right? Where we can just say, look, you're going to go inside and we're going to use big data to implement these extensive uh, contact tracing algorithms. And, and we're going to do all these things and we're not going to talk about privacy or how it makes you feel. We're, we're going to do it. So uh, it, 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 these are authoritarian strengths, right? Very, very straightforwardly. Strengths and air quotes. Well, um, you so know, actually, I, I, so Matt. Yes. No, no. I mean, you're absolutely right. Look, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a fan of the Chinese people who uh, are amazing. Authoritarian is a, a tricky topic, and I, I probably can't talk about it too much. But uh, every system whether you or I are a fan of it or not, every system does have strengths and weaknesses. Um, so I, I think if you do have a top-down extreme command and control capability built into your political system, certainly in a time of crisis, that there are some strengths that go along with that. But, you know, to your, to, yeah. to your point, I, I should just be oh, very clear that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I was so, just going to say that obviously we have yeah. seen that there are democratic countries who also have managed it well, like South Korea and Germany. And 
you know, yes. uh, like I think Taiwan. So, you know, it, I don't think that that goes hand exactly. in hand. But uh, so let's do this. Let's take a quick break because um, we're going to hear from the sponsors who make this show possible. And afterward, we will talk about how this will all affect the crypto community. In response to the challenging times, Crypto.com is introducing three measures to help the community. First, the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases will be waived for the next three months. Second, you can now get up to 10% back by using the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. Lastly, you could buy gift cards on the Crypto.com app from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more, and get 20% back on food and 10% back on groceries. Download the Crypto.com app today. Back to my conversation with Matthew Graham. So how would you say the shutdown can I just, and then Laura, can also... Can I just round back real quick and finish oh, uh-huh. that thought, if you don't mind? Sure. So the, the, the thing that I, I, I wanted to round back, and I wanted to provide context before uh, getting back to your, your initial, the thrust of your, your actual question. So the, the point I want to make is that I, I think that the statistics regarding COVID-19 probably are more true than not, but I, I would, but, but rounding back to your question, I, I'd be very skeptical of the economic information that's coming out because uh, it really was a situation where much of the country uh, shut down for a, a very long period, you know, a period of many weeks actually. Right. And um, since then there've been a, factories ramping up again and there have been, uh, other types of businesses that are more in the uh, work from home mode, but there's still a lot of travel restrictions. Um, I, I didn't check today, but I, I checked a few days ago where if I wanted to go to Beijing, I would have to, even though I'm, I'm in China now, but if I wanted to travel to Beijing, I would have to be quarantined for 14 days. There are still very extensive restrictions in in place, uh, even though we know that uh, Wuhan is is opening up again, things like that. So I, I tend to think the COVID numbers uh, are probably mostly true, but I'd be very skeptical and cautious about economic data. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then the final thing I just wanted to express is that your your point uh, about uh, countries that are democratic that have handled the situation uh, very well. I, Based on what I know, I, I do think that's an extremely, an extremely true point. It's just that uh, we, we really are China specialists, and so I'm familiar with my own country and and with uh, especially mainland China, and not as familiar with some of these other regions. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. From what I can tell, uh, in those other countries, the key was. Uh, aggressive early testing. Um, so let's talk about the crypto community. How did the shutdown affect the crypto industry there? And then what are you seeing in terms of opening things back up? So I, I think that it probably affected the crypto industry mostly just through the market volatility. I think that was probably the primary factor. Um, I, I think that most likely was pretty similar to how crypto was uh, affected in other countries as well, where it was just kind of a, a shock to the system to see the dramatically increased volatility as well as 
as well as especially one very dramatic decrease in prices. So I, I think that kind of period of time where there's a period of time where people were a little shell shocked. I, I think that was probably the primary uh, impact at the same time. I think it's important to note crypto being a subset of blockchain. It's important to note that although DCEP, DCEP, the Chinese uh, digital currency, national currency, digital currency is still very much a top line item, top line priority for the, for the, the mainland Chinese government. There were obviously, uh, it, it, obviously has had some delays as a result of the mayhem wreaked by COVID-19. But do you know if there's any uh, kind of like increased impetus to develop that because of the uh, difficulties of keeping cash clean and virus-free? So the the keeping cash Keeping cash clean was a real thing that happened where they were actually destroying paper money, uh, mostly, as I understand it, in Wuhan because of the obvious concerns. Um, that's I would view that more as a, a short-term, super weird thing that had to happen or that was perceived as having to happen. I'm not sure something like that would become a major factor in the impetus for implementing DCEP. I do think that larger concerns about uh, needing to, to really get the economy up and running again could increase the impetus. Um, certainly it was, certainly it will be pushed back at least a little bit, weeks, if not months as a result of everything that happened. But I, to your point, I, I, it's at a minimum, it's still very much a top line item. And then even possibly because of the concerns about drag on the economy, 2020 GDP, potentially it becomes even more important because of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the U.S., they were discussing using digital dollars excuse me, using digital dollars for the stimulus. Um, So in terms of the crypto industry there, one obvious place that people are looking at right now is what will happen at the time of the Bitcoin halving, because, you know, the Bitcoin price uh, did suffer a little bit. And I've also heard at least of some mining companies in the West that shut down because they were deemed or I don't know about shutdowns, but, uh, you know, were, were affected because they were deemed non-essential businesses and had a hard time keeping their farm staffed. So, you know, what are you hearing in terms of mining in China? Sure. So actually, uh, two nights ago, I had dinner with a group of investors, including one of the largest miners in China, 40,000 A6. I think that's, that's a fair amount, right? Mining is not our, our core competency, but we have, uh, because it's not something we do ourselves, we have many mining friends. But, for example, uh, two nights ago, having uh, dinner and drinks with a mining friend of ours, fascinating guy, by the way, he started out, the miners, by the way, the Chinese miners, I think, are the most fascinating people in crypto. They, they, mm-hmm. They're almost like like 19th century 
Texas oil drillers in terms of their personality. They're real cowboy types. And they're just so interesting and they're just so uh, down to earth and super cool. Uh, but anyway, so a buddy of mine um, who started out, he was in an electrical wiring type business, but at a large scale where he was the, um, I guess, the number one company that did electrical wiring for an entire Chinese province. So it's a major business. And then almost on a whim, five or six years ago, he entered the mining business. And it's like a side hustle, but it's a side hustle of considerable size. He's got 40,000 ASICs. But anyway, and, and, and he mentioned too, he said he's never sold it's because it's his side. It's his, almost like a hobby and he's just, he just accumulates. <laughs> so these guys are really wow. interesting. Um, but I, I, I was talking to, to him and I, I think overall the, the Chinese miners are less likely to be affected in a dramatic way than some of the international miners for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, certainly a major one is the electricity cost in China is extremely competitive, especially in uh, regions such as, as Sichuan province, where many of the miners are located. And from talking to various miner friends, including the one I just mentioned, Overall, I would say that the mining mood in China is cautiously optimistic going into the halving. The consensus seems to be, which I would agree with, that it is a bullish event, but more of moderate skill, not something akin to what we saw uh, in, in previous happenings. <laughs> okay. Well, we're a bit over time, but just for um, a last quick question, you know, you work in VC, and I wondered what you, how you think the coronavirus will affect venture capital, and you know, if you have any words for crypto entrepreneurs. Well, I, I think that a lot of so I, I would phrase it as this. I, I personally, I, I think that if you look at the historical returns. The 2008 vintage was one of the best in recent years. So a lot of people are going to get gun shy, but we, we look at that very much as an opportunity. We don't, one, one of the, the cool things about us is we, we kind of combine a lot of different things, China and Western knowledge, finance and technology, but also we, we, uh, we're, we're very extreme in terms of being independent thinkers. So we don't, we don't really care. We don't, we're happy to be the first money in. We don't really care what other people are doing, but I, a lot of people are going to get gun shy, no question. And I, I think that's an opportunity for people that don't from a VC perspective. From uh, a crypto perspective, I mean, it could be kind of, if I were to put myself in a crypto entrepreneur entrepreneur's shoes, in, in the project shoes, I think it's going to be tough for people like 2017, no question, but you just got to, you got to really, cut down on expenses and, and focus on product and and try to make it through a tough period probably is, is what's going to need to happen. Uh, that's just, you know, the, the, the straight up truth. There's no sugarcoating that, I don't think. 
Okay. Well, I guess we will end on this um, tough love note. Um, (laughs) So it's been so great having you on the show. Thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you, Laura. Okay, let's jump into everyone's favorite news recap. First headline, 11 token issuers from 2017 ICO craze served class action lawsuits. Last week, 11 lawsuits alleging securities law violations were filed in New York federal court against token issuers and crypto exchanges involved in some of the biggest ICOs from 2017, including Binance, Block One, the Tron Foundation, HDR Global Trading, which is BitMEX, B Protocol, which is behind Bancor, Status, Quantstamp, which, Disclosure, has been a sponsor of my podcasts, Civic, Qcoin, and others. In the block, Stephen Pally writes, These lawsuits will be dismissed by the defendants in press releases as ambulance-chasing lawsuit trolling, but it's not quite that black and white upon closer inspection. Referring to a preliminary injunction that asserted Telegram's GRAM tokens are likely securities, Pally continues, Without judging the merits of each case, I personally find it hard to believe that it will be too hard to prove that a substantial number of these tokens were, in fact, securities under U.S. law. He says probably the first question to be resolved is whether or not this jurisdiction can be applied to these defendants, who are in places as wide-ranging as from China to South Africa, from the Cayman Islands to Singapore. Next headline. The coronavirus could speed up the adoption of digital payments and CBDCs. The Bank for International Settlements, BIS, forecasts that COVID-19 could get more countries to expand digital payments, but that that could adversely affect older people and the unbanked. For that reason, central bank digital currencies could help those populations. Meanwhile, the development of at least a couple central bank digital currencies is continuing apace, with Coindesk reporting that the People's Bank of China said in an April 4th notice that it will, quote, undoubtedly further its research and development of the national digital currency with enhanced top-down design. Similarly, according to the Block, South Korea's central bank has launched a new pilot program for a digital yuan that will run until December 2021. In other CBDC news, Bank of England analysts working on that country's central bank digital currency initiative said that private companies could play a role in issuing and distributing money. So we're likely to see a lot of experimentation in different forms that CBDCs take in the future. And finally, for this CBDC roundup, Coindesk Chief Content Officer Michael Casey wrote a terrific op-ed for Fortune titled, Why the U.S. Shouldn't Let China Dominate the Digital Currency Race. He says, quote, A China victory in the digital currency race would have multiple negative effects for the U.S. and Western capitalism generally. If foreign businesses can bypass America's gatekeeping banks, Washington will lose its power to impose sanctions on other countries. Also, if they no longer face exchange rate risks, foreign central banks won't need to backstop their currencies with dollar reserves. The resultant drop in demand for U.S. government bonds would result in higher interest rates, not only for the federal government, but for business loans, mortgages, credit cards, and every other form of U.S. borrowing. Next headline, North Korea's $1.5 billion cryptocurrency stash used to evade sanctions. North Korea is likely using the $1.5 billion it has amassed in cryptocurrency for cross-border payments. 
Jesse Spiro, Global Head of Policy and Regulatory Affairs for Chainalysis, told Coindesk. One likely way in which it is used is in ship-to-ship transfers of cargo on the open sea rather than at port. In March 2019, the UN reported a large increase in illegal ship-to-ship transfers of petroleum products and coal. Another way it's being used is probably to pay directly for goods and services that are prohibited by international sanctions on North Korea. The article also mentions the interesting case of Marine Chain, which came up in the same UN report. In October 2018, the UN Security Council was informed of an ICO issuer called Marine Chain, which was backed by at least one North Korean. After being contacted by security officials, the creators of the project disappeared. Next headline, the Lao to launch April 28th. The Lao, a legally compliant version of the 2016 Dow that infamously suffered an attack in which more than $50 million was drained from the Dow. Like the Dow, the Lao will be a venture fund. However, as per U.S. regulation, participants need to be accredited investors. The Lao may open contribution up to foreign members using Reg S. Starting on April 28th, almost four years to the day after the launch of the Dow, membership to the Lao will open and be sold first come, first serve, with 1% blocks of Lao tokens going for 120 ETH. Ethereum-based projects can pitch themselves to the Lao prior to the launch date. Next headline, Bitcoin's nonce distribution explained. Coinmetrics released a fascinating analysis with several beautifully done charts that shows that the once-dominant Bitmain S9 miner has been replaced by the new Antminer S9. And it also goes into how this shift coincides with a change in the Bitcoin nonce distribution, which should look random, but for certain time periods coinciding with the dominance of the Bitmain S7 and S9 miners did not look random. This analysis has beautiful, easy-to-follow graphics. I highly recommend you check it out. In the same issue, Coinmetrics says that it has also detected that the number of addresses holding between 1 billionth and 100 millionths of the total BTC supply has increased 6% over the last 90 days, especially since March 12th, which indicates perhaps that smaller holders are taking an increased interest in Bitcoin. Next headline. Darknet markets profiteer in Bitcoin from N95 masks and PPE. File this under why are people so awful? Blockchain analysis firm Elliptic has found that personal protective equipment used by medical workers to protect themselves as they tend to coronavirus patients is appearing on darknet markets. Reuters reports that N95 masks are being sold quote, well beyond the pre-crisis retail levels of about $1 each. Some of them are going for nine euros a piece. All right, since that was an unfun story, we're going to now turn to fun bits. The crypto community works to fight the coronavirus. There are a few efforts in the crypto industry to work together to fight the coronavirus and all of its economic fallout. Consensus, which Disclosure has sponsored some of my podcasts, and Gitcoin are conducting a virtual hackathon aimed at creating solutions for fighting the pandemic from April 13th to May 11th. And Coindesk reports that Chicago trading firms are banding together to form the Chicago DeFi Alliance, which will promote DeFi during the coronavirus recession. 
The story quotes Volt Capital co-founder Suna Amaz, who was recently on my other show, Unchained, as saying that the CDA will help entrepreneurs get their startups up and running during the crisis and to stay as insulated from macro conditions as possible. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Matthew and Sino Global, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. If you enjoy these news recaps, then why not sign up for The Real Deal, the weekly newsletter I publish every Friday. Some of you have asked me for the links to the stories I mentioned on the show, and now you can get them delivered right to your inbox. Go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to sign up. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Fractal Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.